Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, we're thankful for all of our student leaders and, and uh, the way at both campuses, Pasadena and here, people are finding ways to connect and finding ways to reach out to our kids and our youth. And uh, So I, I want us to think a little bit this morning about your brain. And uh, we're going to do some, uh, maybe some cerebral things for a minute, but I think it's really important as we think about this new normal and what it is. So this is what I'd like to know. I'd like to know... Uh, how your brain function is going. If you were to just step back and analyze how, how well you think you're thinking and processing right now, and, and uh, I'd like to just get specific, and you can, you can post this, uh, you know, I'm watching, so, uh, so this is what I'd like to do. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd like for you to post how you believe you're doing. Uh, one being you're not really doing well at all. You have muddled thinking. You're kind of lethargic. You're not really on point. You're, your brain's not working real great. Or on the other end, 10, you are at the height of your mental acuity. Uh, you're as bright and connected, and your brain function is off the chart. Uh, so I want you to post that. I want you to go on and just go ahead and put that on the screen and uh, I'm interested in seeing what you think and how you feel about your own brain function in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of what's going on. And so uh, as I kind of look at that and I see a few of you, I think, uh, wow, some of you are uh, very optimistic. I, I was thinking, wow, I, I was thinking... Um, that it would be good now to go around the room, wherever you are, and have the people in the room rate each other's brain function. But then I thought that might be a little risky for, you know, confinement, and maybe we shouldn't do that. But I, I think there's a reason when you begin to think about what that looks like, and you begin to think about it. There's a website called Noggin, and what Noggin is committed to is uh, seeing corporations and businesses through crisis and through management. And so they've shifted gears just a little bit, uh, in this COVID-19 season, and they've begun to talk a little bit about how uh, we function in the middle of stress. In a recent article, they observed, observed that human beings don't make their best decision when they are stressed. That's really not surprising. Research from the fields of psychology, sociology, and neuroscience, they all confirm that stress damages our abilities to think and make questions. And, and it's not just because crisis comes up and there's a lot to think about, it's because crisis actually changes the chemicals in the brain. So listen to this. It seems like that individuals are impacted by stress in very specific ways. And how they're impacted not only applies to us as individuals, so listen to this carefully, but it means that our culture, our systems also suffer from the same sort of muddled thinking we may be able to see that more clearly in the systemic ways of our structures around us. It impairs us collectively. So here's what happens during a crisis. The chemicals of the brain actually change. It actually makes us more irrational. We become more hurried in our thinking and processing, and we become unsystemic. These changes in the brain impair, impair our working memory 
It increases distractions. It lowers our reaction times. And it reduces our ability to process information. The article goes on to say that, that during this time of crisis, we are more susceptible to peer pressure, to prejudice, and to group dynamics. Listen to how they explain it. So what's actually going on in our brains besides commotion? We don't yet know everything, but we do know that decision-making under stress primarily involves two regions of the brain, the cerebral cortex, which is responsible for problem-solving, and the limbic system, which is a much older region of the brain. It's involved in assessing danger. Unsurprisingly, stress triggers our survival instincts, and that activates a fear response governed by the limbic system. The limbic system will simply turn off power to our cerebral cortex in times of great stress. What does that mean? It means we suffer a steep drop in our inductive, deductive, abstract, and logical thinking capabilities. Now go out and try to make good decisions. In addition to the cognitive stresses of stress, there are also bodily responses, something we're probably more familiar with, increased respiration, perspiration, a heart rate, an auditory exclusion or temporary loss of hearing. Maybe some of you are going through that in your house. A tunnel vision. All of those things are linked to stress. And so, so here we have this whole thing, this whole process. And let me ask you again, are you thinking clearly? What's going on in your process? So just for fun, crisis not only impairs our ability to make decisions, but it also demands that we make decisions. So we have to make a ton of choices right now. We've been thrown into this situation in which things that used to just run sort of mindlessly, we were sort of set up in a system, it was kind of routine. Now we're having to make very conscious choices about. We're required to think and plan and engage. All of us in some sense have become hunters and gatherers. Uh, we're having to figure out and strategically plan how to acquire food and, and, and paper towels and all of those things that we need in order for our us to function. And in that process, our values bubble to the surface. So when you go out to the grocery store, the values of others are on display, and your own values are on display. Some people seem to have adopted sort of a every person for themselves mentality or a survival of the fittest kind of value system, and we see that at work in a thousand ways. And I was trying to think how to quantify that, and I think maybe it's this way. Uh, you, can, you can tell a lot about the values of a person based on the number of rolls of toilet paper they have in storage. So you can calculate that now. You don't need to post that. I don't really want to see that. But the truth of it is our values are on display. And, and now going to the grocery store, we're making a million value decisions in real time as we assess where we are and what we need and how we feel safe, and how we feel secure, and how we allow and share, and all of those things have become important. So here we are, we're in this sort of suppressed decision-making mode. Our limbic systems are taking over for our cerebral cortex. We're being forced to make decisions, but there's another factor, and that is we have a tendency to ask ourselves big questions at a time like this. So for a lot of us, in the middle of our muddled brains, we are asking questions like this, why am I here? What is most important to me about life? Am I living my best life? What is my usefulness? What will I go back to? 
And so while we are psychologically and sociologically and philosophically at our lowest point, we're asking ourselves big questions. And then we're wondering why we're not getting great answers or why we're not feeling good or why we can't seem to get on top of some things. All of it leads to the fact that we hunger for information We want to figure it out. We're trying very hard. Kate Starboard wrote an article entitled, How a Crisis Researcher Makes Sense of COVID-19 Misinformation. So this is a great article, so I'm just going to share it with you. I think it's super important. Crisis informatics is the study of how information flows during crisis events, especially how information flows across what we call technology-mediated environments like the Internet and social media. It's also the study of human behavior. In other words, how people respond to crisis events. It builds from previous research in the sociology of disaster. I didn't know there was a sociology of disaster, but there is. Which has been a science and reaches back to the 1960s. And it integrates insight from the psychology of rumor. I didn't know there was a psychology of rumor, but there is. Another field with a very long history. Many of the lessons from these related fields are relevant to the conversations we are all having right now in the middle of COVID-19. When information is uncertain and anxiety is high, the natural response for people is to try to resolve the uncertainty and the anxiety. In other words, to figure out what's going on and what they should do about it. And so we attempt to come together, either in physical spaces or using communication tools like our phones and now social media platforms to make sense of the situation. We gather information, we try to piece together an understanding, often coming up with and sharing our own theories of causes and impacts and the best strategies for responding. And these theories inform the decisions we make and the actions we take. Researchers call this collective activity collective sense-making and consider it a natural part of the human response to disaster with informational and psychological benefits. I imagine most of us are participating in collective sense-making right now. Historically, the biggest challenge for communities experiencing a crisis event has often been a lack of information, especially information from official sources. In that void, people would share information with their families and friends and neighbors and try to make the best decisions in the connected era. The problem isn't a lack of information but an overabundance of information and the challenge of figuring out which information we should trust and which information we shouldn't trust. Amen? Really important. Taking these lessons from crisis informatics into account, I offer a few suggestions. Again, Kate Starbird writing. I ask us as information participants to tune in to how our anxiety fuels information-seeking and information-sharing activities that may make us susceptible to spreading false rumors and or disinformation. We're going to post pieces of this article in the comments because this is important stuff. This can mean slowing down. It can mean doing a better job of vetting our sources. It can also mean choosing not to share content that we're just not sure about. And it can even mean stepping away from our feeds when we realize they aren't helping us resolve the anxiety and uncertainty and are just amplifying them. Now listen to this sentence. We can think about this as the hand-washing for the infodemic accompanying the pandemic. I I I just want to say, 
we ought to enter into genuine hand washing when it comes to the infodemic that we are facing. That we as a congregation, that we as people who are sharing together in these moments together, ought to be people who say, I am going to wash my hands of this infodemic as faithfully as I am sanitizing against the pandemic. I'm not going to share rumors. I'm going to be careful. I realize that my thinking and my decision-making processes are suppressed. I realize that I'm hungering for information and that this makes me susceptible. There is a community kind of sense-making going on that instead of helping is hurting. And so I'm going to I'm going to do my part. I'm going to step away. If I feel discouraged, if I feel overwhelmed, part of the reason I feel overwhelmed, it's scientific. It's human. And I can wash my heart and my mind and my spirit of these things that are contaminating me and my home and my family and my relationships. I'm going to wash my hands. Doesn't mean you're wrong. Just means you don't know if you're right. And we ought to slow down. There's another truth at work in crisis, and that is this. Crisis has the ability to change us and refine us. It has the ability to change and refine our families. It has the ability to change and refine our organizations. That thought might not be so common in the culture, but it's very common in God's Word. Time and again... Crisis is the fundamental way in which people come to breakthrough and transformation and redemption. It's the heart of great storytelling. There's crisis, and then there's adjustment to the crisis, and then there's help from unexpected places, and then there's heroic courage facing what's in front of us, and then the crisis creates space for reflection and understanding, and then there's a new normal, and we find this heroic sort of experience and transformation in the middle of crisis. That's why we like those redemptive stories. That's why we watch those movies. That's why we tell those stories. And so my, as we kind of celebrate that today, thankfully we have this very empathetic guide who is Paul, the apostle. And he's in the middle of his own crisis, and he's facing all of the same realities, and he's going to guide us just a little bit. Paul's in isolation. He's confined. He's under guard. As a Roman citizen, he's allowed to rent a home. So he's in prison, but he's renting his own home. Uh, We talked last week, the Philippians have sent him a a gift in order to meet his finances and eats and all that. He's able to entertain guests, but he is tethered to a Roman guard. He is a mover. He's a relational guy. He's a traveler. He's a guy on the go. He's a person that does ministry the way it's supposed to be done. He does it in person, and he does it face-to-face, and he builds relationships, and he eats meals with people, and he gets out there until he's not, and he can't. And then he begins to figure out something else. In his muddled brain, he finds a peace in the midst of his circumstances, and he finds some insight and some realization about his own values and his own deepest beliefs. And beautifully, we don't have to read his mind. We can just read his words. And here they are, Philippians 1, 12, and then skipping ahead down to 19. I think they mean more today than they've ever meant before. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body and convinced of this. I know I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your process and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you will stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So Paul confronts this new normal, and, and, and I see five things that I think matter a lot. Number one, he immediately see, he sees courageous opportunities. Paul's limitations have opened up a whole new way of advancing the gospel. The language is very profound here. The word he used for advancing the gospel is a word that is related to the Greek military. And, and, and what it literally means is this, that oftentimes when the army is marching, they come against uh, some obstacle that is incredibly difficult for them, a mountain range, a, a, a forest. Uh, they come against things that they can't get through. This word is used, advancement, is, is a word that means before the army ever arrives, there are forces at work to make a way through whatever the obstacle looks like. And Paul uses this word to say, I'm in chains, and what I considered to be an obstacle, God had already gone before and created a path for the advancement of the gospel. And I just want to suggest to you this. What we're doing right now is the path that was created for us to continue to advance the gospel. Now, here's the challenge, and I want you to listen to me closely. You and I are invited to take these moments we're sharing right now and, and by posting an emoji or a comment or sharing a sermon or hosting a watch party or listening carefully and picking out a quote that you can post later on Instagram or, or your Facebook feed or whatever it is, you are able to advance the gospel. But we can't be spectators. We must be participants. It's never been easier for you and I, people who are incredibly shy about sharing their witness, can, can simply think and listen and copy a comment and, and, and write something. And you don't have to make it up. I'm not saying you ought to make it up. But if God speaks to you in the course of these moments we share together, we, we ought to have hundreds of shares on this sermon and service if it's touched you, if the music to sing and sit in space and sing as well with my soul. If it means something, by all means, we're living in a space where, where good information is hard to get. We ought to be sharing and sharing and sharing and posting and sharing and posting because God has already made a way for the advancement of the gospel. And in crisis, there is opportunity. And Paul understands it and he knows it. And he gets it, and he celebrates the relationship. Number two, there are courageous connections. 
Paul says, because I am in chains and because I'm in this place, people are sharing the gospel without fear. Now, I think when we hear that, we read that, we think, oh, so he's in jail, and because he's bright and happy and writing a letter about joy, then people are encouraged to go share. Nope. That it's a spiritual thing. Nope. Paul tells us that he is under the care of the palace guard. That's what he says. The Greek is actually the praetorian guard. And so just so you know for a minute what that looks like, uh, first of all, the Praetorian Guard are the, the, the basically the elite of the Roman military. As a Roman citizen, he was greeted by the head of the Praetorian Guard when he arrived in Rome. It was the head of the Praetorian Guard that incarcerated him. And, and these are the elite. Uh, they served originally a 10-year term in the military, but, but by the time Paul is serving, they're serving a 16-year term term in the military, so they are very long-standing. They're the officers. They're the West Point. They're the academy. They're, they're, they are the elite of the Roman military. And why that matters is because what we're going to find out as this story unfolds and as the book of Acts tells us the story is that many members of the Praetorian Guard are becoming believers in Jesus Christ. And why that matters is ultimately, I don't know if you know this, but that powerful group who really centered in Rome but were scattered all over the, 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 the empire of Rome, that group eventually becomes the people who whoever they nominate for emperor becomes emperor because they have the military might to enforce it. So this group of people who are literally picking the leaders of the empire are being impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they have served their term, they are given citizenship and a stipend and they are given property in the empire, and they, they disperse into the empire, and they settle in the major cities around the world. So Paul's not talking about, because he's in chains, they're going to be spiritually encouraged. He's talking about, I have made significant connections, and in being tethered to a member of the Praetorian Guard, they have become believers, and that is disseminating throughout the kingdom, finding sympathy and support all over the kingdom so that you can be encouraged. Literal, real connections. And that happens in crisis. There is courageous connections going on, and Paul is highlighting that reality. Number three, there's a courageous optimism. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. In the middle of his muddled thinking and his limited mobility, Paul exercises a genuine optimism, which, by the way, does lead to his ultimate release and his alternate deliverance. And, and so I, I just think, listen, it takes courage today to believe in good outcomes. For some of you, you're in situations and circumstances that are incredibly difficult. For some of you, you you're just worn out. You're just discouraged. You're just depressed. It takes courage in the middle of these days to have optimism. It takes courage to sit down and say, I'm going to sing even though I don't necessarily feel it, that it is well with my soul. I'm going to believe that in all things, God's working for my good. I'm going to believe that this is turning out for what's best. Whatever I feel uncomfortable about, whatever I feel anxious about, whatever I'm uncertain about, whatever my limbic system is telling me to fight or, fly or flee, I'm going to stop and I'm going to exercise this truth. Have I not commanded you? Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Be strong. 
and be courageous, for I am the Lord your God, and I'll go with you wherever you go. It takes courage to be optimistic in the middle of crisis. It takes courage to be optimistic in the new normal. But it's part of the truth that in this time, God is using things in ways that matter. Number four, he encounters courageous truth. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul doesn't just have some kind of naive optimism. He's gotten in touch with the deeper reality of what he believes about life and the future and the universe. And so what he says is, listen, <laughs> we'll get through this crisis, but ultimately, some, at some point, it's going to come to an end. At some point, my life will be done. I, I, I will finish the race. I will have fought the good fight. I, I, I will be preparing for my departure. That's going to happen to all of us. And Paul says, I'm not just trying to be optimistic in the moment. I'm not just sort of, you know, whistling through the graveyard. I, I am genuinely believe about the core of the universe that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm going to walk around in that reality. I'm going to immerse myself in that truth. This is a deep belief of who I am and what I think is true about life. And, and, and I am a pilgrim in this place. I am passing through. And for some of us, man, the passing is much faster than we could have ever imagined. When we were 10 and 11 and 12 and 14, we, we couldn't wait to be 21. Now we can't even see 21 in the rearview mirror. It goes so fast. It's, it's like being on a roller coaster and you just you feel like those first decades of your life, you're just cranking slowly, but then something happens and somebody pushes you over the top and suddenly Man, you're 60 years old, almost. And Paul's saying, listen, I, I'm not just trying to ignore the reality. I'm telling you, there's a deeper truth at work. For me, to live is Christ in all things, through all things, causing things to work together for good, helping me navigate. And for me to die is gain. And what do I have to be afraid of? If God is for me, who can be against me? He's sifting through things in this moment of crisis. And finally, number five, courageous change. Listen to this last line in verse 28. Uh, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Can I ask you a question? What, what would change for you if for five minutes you were not afraid? What would change for you if you just said to your anxiety, God is with me, God is for me, I'm going to stop being afraid of the things I'm afraid of. I'm going to stop being afraid of circumstances. I'm going to stop being afraid of the future. I'm going to stop being afraid of what's next. I'm going to stop being afraid. I'm going to stop being afraid. I'm going to be, what, what an incredible different thing that might be if you and I were to embrace this courageous change in which we stopped being afraid of everything. I know life's imperfect and I know things happen. But if you go back and you think about the courageous truth that for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, that, that even life, not life, not death, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not principalities, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. These are the core beliefs of who we are. That's why we have faith. That's why we gather like this. That's why we depend on the Word. Not because it's unrealistic, because it pushes past the facade. It pushes past the reality that we've got to fix everything. And if we just say a little prayer over it, it'll all be okay. No, 
even if it's not okay, it's still okay. That's what faith is. That's what belief in God is. That's what the story is. That's what the narrative is. It didn't always turn out okay, but then it did turn out okay. Jesus did go to the cross, but he was raised from the dead. And we participate both in the dying side and in the resurrected side. What would it be like? The whole imagery of Scripture is once Jesus overcomes death, now we can overcome everything. Here's the greatest fear of all human beings. (laughs) Well, I've taken care of that. So you no longer need to live in fear. That'll take some practice. That'll take some time. So just as we close, I just want to remind you. Listen, there's another truth at work in the crisis. Maybe you've got a muddled brain. Maybe your brain chemistry has taken all of your cerebral cortex chemicals and thrown them at your limbic system and, and your fight or, fight or flight tendencies have come to the forefront and you're asking big questions. What's the meaning of life? What is the meaning of my life? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Listen, crisis can create all of that. Forcing us to make decisions when we're at our worst. Forcing our culture to make decisions when it's... Forcing our leaders to make decisions when they're at their worst. But you and I, we're going to be different. We're not going to act like that. We're going to be careful what we say. We're going to be careful what we share. We're going to wash our hands of this infodemic just like we're washing our hands of this pandemic. We're going to keep our mouths shut. We're going to speak our faith. And we're going to live courageously. We're going to live courageously in this new normal. And we're going to do it because we're invited by God's word to allow crisis to refine and clarify and redeem us, not defeat us. I'm going to say a prayer over you. And we're going to close together. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. God, would you be present with all of those who have gathered around the country and world as we share in these moments together? We're so thankful for good people doing good research, trying to figure out things, and we're so weary of the suspicion and the conspiracy theories and all the things that are being trafficked in in our culture and in our world and distrust from every angle. God, we just want to say with clarity, our trust is not in anything else other than you and that you've promised. You've promised in all things to work for our good, And so there may be leaders we don't respect and we don't believe in and we don't believe in the system and we don't believe it was done right and we believe that there are things going on that are dishonest and maybe they are. But you've spoken it so clearly that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can stand against you. And so in the midst of whatever is going on for whatever motivation it's going on, we don't really care. Because we know that you're going to work, and you're going to lead, and you're going to shape, and you're going to cause things that were intended for evil to be used for good, because that's who you are. That's the redemptive God we believe in and celebrate. It's the story of this, and we're going to allow this crisis, this new normal, to refine us, and change us, and redeem us, and we're going to look up. And we're going to celebrate a new kind of courage. And we're going to live it. Would you bless these homes and families? Will you apply it to their hearts? Will you give them the courage to reach out and to share and share and share and witness and be a light in a season that is dark? 
I pray it might be so. I pray we might be faithful. I pray we might be one in spirit with all who have gone before. And I pray that you would lead us. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.